Well, good evening and welcome to our midweek Bible study. We're so glad that you're joining with us. We're currently on Thursday nights going through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we are in Isaiah and tonight, chapter 41, having left off in chapter 40 last week. We're only going to take one chapter because tonight we're also going to partake of communion together and I don't want to rush through that. So those of you joining us online, you might want to go ahead and get the elements ready at this time and at the end of the Bible study we will partake together. So Isaiah chapter 41, let's pray. If you would please join with me. We'll ask God to bless our time together in His Word tonight. Thank you, Lord. Lord, would you now just settle our hearts and help us to just kind of catch our breaths in a way and, and just quiet our minds and focus our attention on you and that which you have for us tonight in our time together in your word and Lord, we're so thankful to you for your word, especially at times like this. I mean, your word is life. It's the word of life. It's the bread of life. And Lord, I, I know I probably speak for many that are here tonight in this, your church and those watching online when I pray this, but Lord, we're just desperate for you. And we need you, Lord, like never before. We need you. We need to have you as only you can minister to us and speak to us and guide us. Lord, as our Bibles are open, I pray so too would our hearts be open to receive from you tonight. Lord, please don't let the busyness and the stress and the pressures of our lives in any way keep us away or distract us from hearing you speak in that still small voice of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, please, we're asking you and even in advance thanking you for speaking in and through your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right. Wow. Tonight, again, I know I say this every week, but I hope you don't tire of me saying it. Uh, this is another very encouraging chapter that's before us tonight here in Isaiah. The Lord declares that He will help us. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. Why? Because I will. And by the way, as we go through the study tonight, you're not going to be tested on this, but count how many times God declares, I will. I will. Now the emphasis is on I will. Not I will. No, I will. They won't. They can't. I can. I will. Let me, um, 
Uh, let me just bear with me here. Throughout the Old Testament, replete throughout the Old Testament, God commands Moses to have Aaron say to the people, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of, Israel, out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt. Now, replete throughout Scripture, it's I am the Lord your God. The emphasis is on I am the Lord your God. Now, why would God have to declare and even emphasize that it's Him? Because when they, in the Exodus and in the wandering in the wilderness, and when Moses was on Mount Sinai getting the law, the tablets, the commandments, and taking what apparently was too long of a time for them, they thought he wasn't coming back. So they go to Aaron. Now keep in mind, Aaron is Moses' older brother. And so they say to Aaron, he says, um, yo, bro, <laughs> where's Mo? <laughs> and uh, where is he? He's not here, and he's not coming back, and he sure has been gone a long time. And so what are we going to do? And we kind of need a God. And so they put a lot of pressure on him and convinced him to take all of the gold, and make for them a God to worship. And so what does he do? He caves, he acquiesces to them. He takes the gold, he puts it into the fire, and he makes this golden calf. Where do you think they got that idea from? Egypt. One has aptly said that when God got Israel out of Egypt, he had to get the Egypt out of Israel too. So, he makes this golden calf. And you wouldn't believe it unless you knew that it was written in Scripture, in the pages of Holy Writ. But Aaron declares to them, this is the God, the calf, that delivered you out of Egypt. No! So now, here comes Mo. <laughs> and, and I mean, well, you know the account. You know, it's like God is declaring, and we're going to see it tonight here in Isaiah, I will help you. I, the emphasis is on I will. I, I am the Lord your God. I will uphold you. I will strengthen you. God is declaring this through the prophet Isaiah. And I think maybe some of us need to be reminded of this tonight. The Lord is saying to us, I, I will do this. I will help you. They're not going to help you. We're going to see this with the other false gods that are going to be called into the courtroom of eternity, as it were. And they're going to be given an opportunity to plead their case. Well, they don't have anything to say because, oh yeah, uh, false gods 
can't speak. That's the problem. So they don't. They have nothing to say. And so God says, well, I, I will say this. And that's what we're going to see tonight. Um, no less than three times in this chapter, actually, God, through the prophet Isaiah, says He will help us, and we are not to fear. And it's important to understand that at this time, in this period in Judah's history, they desperately needed this assurance from the Lord in that day. And I would suggest that even more so in our day, we need this assurance that the Lord will help us. So let's jump in. You ready? Verse 1. Keep silence before me, O coastlands. Now the coastlands is a reference to the distant lands. All of you come now, and, but be silent. Keep silent. You have the right to remain silent. You might want to exercise that right. And let the people renew their strength. Let them come near. Then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Here God is calling them together to argue their case for the worshiping of other gods. And he's saying, silence in the courtroom, because he's about to make his opening arguments. And we see that starting in verse 2. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him ruler over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them, verse 3, and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it? calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. Well, that's a pretty <laughs> case closed as far as I'm concerned right there. Now, there is some debate as to who it is that God is speaking of here. Some believe it's Abraham. Others believe it's King Cyrus, yet future. We're going to see that later on. Yet others suggest that it's none other than Jesus Christ that he's speaking of here as this righteous one. And regardless, God is proving his case because he's asking the question that only he can answer. I'm the one who did all of this, not you. I am. I did this. I did this. Verse 5, the coastlands saw it and fear. The ends of the earth were afraid. 
they drew near and came. Everyone, verse 6, helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering. <laughs> then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. What? Okay, this is their response. This is the response of the defense to the opening argument. What's their response? Oh, fear. Rightfully so. But that's where it ends because even though the ends of the earth were afraid, they drew near together and tried to encourage one another. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah, that was a strong opening argument. I mean, that's pretty strong evidence, and it's actually fact and true. But hey, let's just, you know, it's going to be okay. Um, let's get the goldsmith over here. Let's get the guys who do the soldering, and let's get our gods soldered together. <laughs> And let's fasten them, secure them with pegs, because we don't want them falling down, you know, after all, and tottering. We talked about this last week. You know you're in trouble when you have to make your God, instead of worshiping the God who made you. That's what's happening here. Instead of their fear turning them to God, it turns them instead to their man-made gods. And lest we be too harsh on them, I think we would all do well to consider how we're just as prone in our day to do the same thing. Isn't it true? And I just hear me out on this. I'm just as guilty as the next guy when it comes to this. But sometimes turning to the Lord is the last resort instead of the first response. Adversity strikes, something happens. And instead of turning to the Lord, we call up so-and-so and we tell them about it. What, they can help you? They got problems of their own. They can't help you. The Lord will help you. Why don't you go to Him? Why is it, and what is it about us, innate within our sin nature, that Adamic nature within us, that still believes that, oh, if we could just get our guy in position, you know what I'm saying, then it's, it's going to be good. He'll, he'll help our cause. Oh, really? Oh, if we could just, it, if, if just so-and-so, if I could just, they'll help. No, they won't. I just imagine, you know when, 
when we read how God is a jealous God, not of us, for us, you know what that means, right? God is so ferociously in love with us that He's jealous for us and He, he stands on standby at the ready waiting for us to come to Him and He watches us in that jealousy for us as we go to all of these other gods. And again, lest you get too harsh on them then, <laughs> we do this now. Well, we, we don't call them that, but boy, we sure uh, take care of those things, don't we? We wash them, get them detailed. I'm going to leave that one right there. No, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know, as I've watched all of this that's happening play out, it has really struck me how it is that everything that man would turn to is no longer there to turn to anymore. And it's almost had this much needed effect of getting people, especially God's people, to turn to Him because of it. And that's a good thing, by the way. Verse 8, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you, verse 9, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Oh, this is interesting. Notice this stark contrast between those with man-made gods and Israel slash Jacob who is chosen by God. In other words, man chose these gods, made these gods in their image, and God is saying, no, I, I chose you and made you in my image. And there's something else here too, um, not so easily seen at first read, but there's this delineation between Israel and Jacob. Now you understand that Yahob, Jacob, had his name changed to Israel and would have 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's used interchangeably throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes you'll hear God refer to Israel as Jacob, and other times you'll have him refer to Jacob as Israel. Now, why is that important? Because you have to understand what the names mean. The name is the nature. Yahob or Jacob is and <laughs> means heel snatcher. 
Because you remember when he was born, he tried to grab Esau's heel in the womb to be the firstborn. It also carries with it the idea of being, I hope, no, is anybody named Jacob here tonight? We love you. We want you to know we love you. You're not a conniving heel snatching brother <laughs> in Christ. <laughs> so, <laughs> but Yahob or Jacob meant conniver, schemer, heel snatcher. And you remember when Yahob wrestled with the Lord, that was the Lord, pre-Bethlehem appearance or Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ. That's who he was wrestling with, the Lord. All night long, this, that, you want to talk about strong will. Jacob was a very strong-willed man. And he demands that God bless him. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And the Lord says, you know, I want to bless you, but I can't bless you until I first break you. Break that strong, stubborn, obstinate. I know I'm not speaking of any of you here tonight. This is all theoretical. But I mean that, that strong, I got to break that before I can bless you. You will never find in Scripture the blessing preceding the breaking. The br now, once he touches that hip socket and breaks him, now I can bless you. And then it's at that time when he says to Jacob, you are no longer Jacob, con man, conniving, scheming, heel snatcher. Your name now will be Israel. Oh, you know what Israel means? Governed by God. I'll take that. I like that way more better than scheming, conniving, heel snatcher. Governed by God, ruled by God, because see, you've been broken by God. To be broken is to break our will to His. You know what's interesting about that? It changed His walk literally and figuratively for the rest of His life. There was always that brokenness, and the brokenness is the catalyst for the blessing. I want to bless you, Jacob, but I got to break you first. Oh, I tell you, you know, in our lives we devalue broken things, right? We throw them away, but God values brokenness. And you can look throughout Scripture and find time after time where the blessing would always come subsequent to the brokenness. You know, in my walk with the Lord, there have been so many times where I wish I would have broke easier and sooner. <laughs> Could have saved myself. Again, I know you know nothing of this. <laughs> I could have saved myself so much unnecessary difficulty. 
fighting in my own strength, wrestling with the Lord and no, my way, my will, I will, I will, I, I, I will. <laughs> so the Lord saying, no, you won't, I will. And I'm going to prove it right now. Watch me now. <laughs> That's what God is saying here. Verse 10. Uh, I want to read the verse, follow along as I do. I want to make a couple of comments on this, but this is the takeaway for tonight. I know God has used verse 10 in my life in a powerful way. It's a go-to for me because it covers everything. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Oh, man. You know, in your own time in God's Word, I would encourage you to just meditate on just this one verse. There's so much here. God, God is saying to us, please don't be afraid because I'm with you. You're not alone. You have nothing to fear. And don't be dismayed or discouraged or given over to despair. You want to know why? Because I am your God. <laughs> what was I thinking? I will strengthen you. I know we talked about this last week. Yes, I know you're weary of little strength, as he would say to the church of Philadelphia, but I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I need help, Lord. Well, I will help you. <laughs> and then this one, and I can't help but notice the irony in this, because he says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Again, this is another anthropomorphism where it's a use of a, a human term to describe God. So it's the hand of God, my righteous right hand. In that culture and in Scripture, the right hand, you know, we, we, we take the saying out of Scripture, they're my right hand man. The right hand is the strong hand, my right hand man. In fact, Benjamin in Hebrew, it's similar in Arabic, my native tongue. Ben is son, Yamin is right, son of my right hand. That's what the name Benjamin, anybody named Benjamin? We're better if it's, if it's Benjamin and not Yahob. But Benjamin means son of my right hand my right-hand man, son of my strength. And so what God is saying is, I'm going to take my righteous right hand, and I'm going to keep you up. I'm going to hold you up. Now here's where the irony comes in. <laughs> they, they had to hold their gods up. They had to keep them from tottering and falling. It's, it's kind of like, this is why I know God has a sense of humor. He's kind of like, don't get, look at them. And He's saying this to them too, by the way. You know, so far, 
I mean, this is a slam dunk, a closed case. I, 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 I mean, case closed. I mean, this is a, you, you have made your gods that you've got to keep holding them up. <laughs> How's that working out for you? You need those pegs, do you? To kind of fasten them in together, you know, and get the nails that we've got. Man, we better, you know. Un How about a soldering iron? I mean, literally, they, they had to solder their God together to hold it together. And God's saying, you don't have to hold me together. I'm going to hold you together. Yeah, but things are falling apart in my life. No, I got you. I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uphold you. I'm going, you know what uphold means? I know this is deeply profound. I'm going to hold you up, right? Uphold, hold you up. I'm going to hold you up. Yeah, but Lord, I'm going down. No, you're not, because I'm going to hold you up. I will help you. I will uphold you. I will strengthen you. Let me. <laughs> That's in my version. <laughs> Don't fight me. Let me do this for you. Verse 11, Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. And those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing as a non-existent thing. Oh, so you know what this is speaking to, right? Every nation that has come against and been incensed with the nation of Israel, where are they? They're non-existent. When was the last time you introduced yourself to somebody and had them tell you that they were an Assyrian or a Babylonian? They don't exist anymore. They're non-existent. They're nothing. They don't exist anymore. Everyone who has opposed the nation of Israel, the apple of God's eye, where are they? You tell me. I, I, I don't, where are they? Where did they go? I mean, I know the answer, but I'm asking you, where did they go? They're gone. Well, that's why. Yeah, let me take a step further, just real quick. It is believed that the British Empire ceased to be an empire because of what they did to Israel. And for those of you who are familiar with history, the history of the last century, when one of the most important prophecies in all of the Bible was fulfilled on May 14th of 1948, and the nation of Israel was reborn in a day, exactly as God's Word said it would be. 
and all of the nations that came against Israel have been disgraced and have come to nothing as a result. That's what this is saying. It's really Genesis 12, when God makes the covenant with Abraham and He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And all those that bless you, I will bless. But if they curse you, I will curse them. Verse 13, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand. Stop right there. Is that not a magnificent picture of our loving Heavenly Father just taking us by the hand? Remember when your children were young and you would just take them by the hand? And especially when they were fearful. That's what he says next, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not, verse 14, you worm, Jacob. Don't get weird on that. We'll come back to that in a moment. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Okay, what's God saying here? He's not being harsh, calling Jacob a worm. It is a description of the weakness and the vulnerability and lowliness of a worm. It was Roy Hessian in his book, classic, The Calvary Road. He draws a fascinating comparison and parallel between the worm and the snake. You step on a worm, you crush it, you break it. Talk about brokenness. Try doing that with a snake. What does it do? It fights back. It bites back. Not the worm. See, this is a description of the vulnerability of Israel, of Jacob the lowliness of Israel. And it's God saying, I know that you're as vulnerable and lowly as a worm who could just be smashed and crushed effortlessly. But don't be afraid. I will help you. In fact, I'm going to take your worm hand <laughs> by the hand, <laughs> and I will hold you, and I will walk with you, and I will see you through. Verse 15, Behold, it gets better by the way, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small, 
and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, and glory in the Holy One of Israel. In other words, God is saying that He, <laughs> as only He can, will take that powerless worm and give it powerful, sharp teeth. That's what he's saying. And that's exactly what he did with Israel. The poor and needy seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree I will set, I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together. That verse 20, they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. And the Holy One of Israel has created it. I will do it. It's actually not, I will do it. He went and done it. And one need look no further than to Israel today, where all of a sudden those wastelands are beautiful, fertile lands. Exactly as God said. He, by the way, there's an intersect between what the prophet Isaiah says here and the prophet Ezekiel. By, by the way, if the rapture doesn't happen first, we're not too far away from Ezekiel. So I think the rapture is going to happen first. So don't get your hopes up. Verse 21. I love this part. Keep in mind now, we're still in this courtroom, as it were, right? And God is still speaking in silence in the courtroom. They're not saying anything. They can't, but they're not saying anything. So now God is going to have, well, kind of a little bit of fun with them. <laughs> so He says, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them, and know the latter end of them. Or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil. Do something that we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, verse 24, you are nothing, <laughs> and your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. In other words, 
Okay, you present your case. Oh yeah, I forgot. You can't speak. Oh, okay, tell us what's already happened so that we can know that, or better yet, how about this? Don't tell us just what's already happened. Tell us what's going to happen before it happens. Let's see you do that, because I just did that. And I'm going to do it again here in a moment. <laughs> so how about that? Just, can, can, can you do that? You go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, speak. Uh, speak either what's happened or what's going to happen, good or evil. Just say something. Do something. Oh yeah, I forgot. I'm sorry. You can't because you're, you're nothing. You're not a God at all. Because God made, God's made by man's hands are no gods at all. Verse 25, I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. This is future. From the rising of the sun, he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who has declared, verse 26, from the beginning that we may know? And former times that we may say, He is righteous. Surely there is no one who shows. Surely there is no one who declares. Surely there is no one who hears your words. <laughs> because there's no words to hear, because you can't speak. I'm sorry, emphasis added. Now, what's happening here? It's like God saying, uh, okay, you can't tell me what happened in the past. You certainly can't prophesy what's going to happen in the future. I will. I'm going to raise one up from the north, yet future. This time we know, and we're going to see this, chapter 45, verse 1, where he's going to name Cyrus, I think it's about 150 years before there was a Cyrus. Uh, that's uh, what I call uh, knowing the future, prophesying the future. And by the way, that's the litmus test to know whether or not a prophecy is true or a prophet is a true prophet or a false prophet, does it come to pass with 100% accuracy? If it's 98.3675%, kill him, false prophet, 100% accuracy. And oh, by the way, <laughs> no one, no religious writing has any prophecy about the future recorded in its pages. The Quran, no prophecy. It came after, by the way, the other subsequent writings. No prophecy. Why? Because 
God declares. I am God because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens, so when it happens you'll know that I am God. So if you're not really God, you can't do that. Well, you can try. You're going to fail miserably. And so God is, I mean, you could almost say that He's kind of rightfully bragging on Himself. I am God. I can tell you what's going to happen in the future. I'm going to raise up a man. His name, Cyrus, chapter 45, verse 1. He names him by name. And God is going to bring him from the north, and He's going to conquer the Babylonians. This is a prophecy that would be fulfilled, yet God declares it, and it's recorded 150 years before it's fulfilled. By the way, i got a lot of by the ways tonight. One more by the way. This is a good by the way. So you've heard that expression, God said it, that settles it. Uh, you know what God's, I hate to say it like this, it's almost profane, but you know what God's track record is? You know what His, his accuracy percentage is? <laughs> 100 percent. So why do I point that out? Because we have all of these prophecies about what's going to happen at the time of the end. And if all of the prophecies we have in the Bible have been fulfilled with 100 percent accuracy heretofore, you know what that means. That the prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled with 100 percent accuracy as well. God said it, that settles it. Verse 27, the first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they are all worthless. Their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion." Ah, case closed. Jury's not out. Verdict is in. And God has proved it. Not just beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt, God has proved it. The verdict, you gods are no gods at all. You gods, these molded images that you had to nail together and solder together, to hold together, to keep together, you know what they are? Nothing. Wind and confusion. Um, confusion? Well, that's an interesting word. The last word of the chapter, and that's how the chapter ends. <laughs> the end. Confusion. Who's the author of confusion? The devil. Okay, so he's the accuser of the brethren. He's the father of lies. He's 
fathered all of these lies. He's the father of them. And the author of confusion? Oh, so he's an author. Yeah. So he's written books? Yeah. What's the name of the books? Confusion, Volume 1, Confusion, Volume 2, Confusion, Volume Ad Infinitum. He's the author of confusion. You know, I always know that it's not the Lord when I'm riddled with confusion. Because I know confusion doesn't come from the Lord. I know who authored that confusion. If there's confusion, that's not the Lord, that's the enemy. And that's what these gods with a little g are. And they have nothing to say, because they can't. You bring them all together, like we just did here in chapter 41, and give them the opportunity to present their case. <laughs> they, I'm waiting. You can't. You have no case to present. You have no words to speak. You'll forgive me for the pun intended, but you have no leg to stand on. Because <laughs> it keeps, anyway, okay. That's probably a good way to end, and so we can partake together of communion. I wanted to make sure that we had enough time at the end. I never want to rush through the communion celebration. And that's what it is. It is a celebration, a commemoration. A commemoration in the sense that it's a reminder. And that's what Jesus said, that as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That's key, because we get so caught up in the busyness of life, the stress, the pressures, especially with everything that's going on today. And maybe I'll just speak for myself, but sometimes I find myself, and my daughter's good about this, she always, you know how just out of the mouths of babes, she's really not a babe anymore, but she's a 14-year-old babe, <laughs> she'll just look at me and go, you look really worried. Worry's a sin, you know, Baba. I'm like, I'm not worried. I'm concerned. There's a difference between being concerned and being worried. She said, no, you look really stressed. You look really worried. No, I'm just, I'm just really concerned. There's a lot of, lot of things happening right now. I'm just a little bit concerned. No, you're not concerned. You're, you're worried. You're stressed. I'm like, okay, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. It's almost like I can hear the Lord, that still small voice of the Holy Spirit going, uh, did you forget? Forget what? Did you forget that you're saved? Oh yeah. Why don't you live like it? I, do we need a refresher course here? Do you, do you need to be reminded? Well, come to the table and be reminded. And remember what I did for you. I died for you. 
I paid for you for all of your sins, and I saved you. Remember? Oh yeah. See, sometimes I live like I'm not saved. I live like, what are we going to do? What are you talking about? What are you going to do? Oh, <laughs> first of all, your first problem is you are going to do it. No, you're not. I already did it. I will. I did. Not you. I. I am the Lord your God. Remember? That's what the communion table represents. It's that time to just come back, <laughs> come to His table, and remember and celebrate Him in remembrance of Him. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, we have the account of what we affectionately refer to as the Last Supper. We're told that when the hour had come, He, speaking of Jesus, sat down and the twelve apostles with Him. Then He said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's about to go to the cross. He's told them that. They know that. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's a good reminder right there. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, this is the second time now, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And, verse 19, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So if you'll take and peel back the top part of the packaging, you'll have the bread there. Just take it out. Hold on to it for a moment. Those of you online, if you just take the bread and have it ready. Speaking of Jacob, <laughs> you understand these are not just names in our Bibles. These are men and women of God that we're going to meet one day very soon, I believe, in heaven. I've always uh, wondered, I know there's, this is, might be weird, but this is how I think. Pray for me, by the way. But I always wonder, you know, I know we're going to know each other in heaven. You know how sometimes people will ask, are, are we going to recognize each other in heaven? I, I, <laughs> I like how one said it in a, not in a snarky way, but in a humorous way. Well, of course, we're not going to be more stupid in heaven than we are down here. I mean, yeah, we're going to have our glorified bodies. We're not going to, as John says, know any man after the flesh. But yeah, we're going to know each other. We're not going to know each other like we knew each other now. Thank God for that. That wouldn't be heaven at all. <laughs> but we are going to recognize each other. But so here's the question I have kind of inquired of the Lord about. I can't wait to meet Noah. Uh, are they going to have like name tags? You know, hi, my name is Noah. Or are we just going to know? Are we going to recognize it? Oh, that's Noah. Oh, that's got to be Jacob. Look at the guy. He's still got the limp. No, he's not. No. 
I'm going somewhere with this, just bear with me. But <laughs> it's like, this is really going to happen. We are going to, what we're doing here tonight, we are going to do again with Him when this that we're doing tonight finds its ultimate fulfillment. By the way, we're going to be, uh, Hebrews 11, uh, we're getting there. Hebrews 12, that great cloud of witness. We're going to go through the hall of faith. Oh, I can't wait. We're going to have to wait one week because <laughs> not quite there yet. We're only taking three verses on Sunday, Lord willing, about faith. But then we're going to go into this hall of faith where God just lists all of these men and women of faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Well, we're going to get to meet all the by faiths. Maybe they have a hall of faith. Anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting off again. But this, this is, can I say it like this? I'm going to. This is more real than what we're doing here tonight. When this finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven is more real than what we're doing here tonight. I know that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, but it's true. It's true. So as we partake together of this bread, it is a symbol of His body that was broken for us instead of us. The blessing comes after the brokenness. So would you partake of the bread with me? Thank you, Lord, so much. Lord, thank you for giving us this to do. And as often as we do, to do it in remembrance of you. Lord, we do remember. And not only do we remember, but we want to be mindful of this. Mindful of what you did for us instead of us. Your body broken for us. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this symbol of the bread. Thank you, Lord. Likewise, Luke goes on to write by the Holy Spirit, he, speaking of Jesus, also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So peel back the rest of the packaging, you'll have the cup. And again, just hold on to it for a moment, those online as well. I want to uh, just bring up one very important aspect of the communion table that is really lost, I think, in our culture here in the West, especially here in America. You have to understand in the Middle East that when you break bread and eat, uh, from the same bread and drink from the same cup, there's a bond that is created, a common union, communion. And you are bound together for life unto death. They took it very seriously. I was, uh, who was I talking to uh, this last week? They reminded me of what I had forgotten. I've forgotten a lot of things, but I used to talk about 
in 1993 when then President Bill Clinton there on the White House lawn had the signing of the Oslo Peace Agreement with Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat. And in fact, every once in a while you'll, you'll see video of it. It's kind of almost awkward, but you know, Clinton has them, you know, reach out and shake each other's hand. And Rabin's a little bit, you know, hesitant. And then Yasser Arafat, I mean, he reaches his hand out and then they shake It's like, in the Arab culture, it means absolutely nothing. You know how they seal a deal? You know how they sign a, an agreement, make a covenant, cut covenant? They break bread. You'll never see a, an Arab, a Muslim, eat with a Jew because of what it means. Because there's no <laughs> common union together. I, uh, okay, one last thing. We're, we're good. Don't look at your watches. We're almost done. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, my um, family, Arab family, had a feud. You have not seen a family feud until you've seen Arabs feud. That's a family feud. Seven years. It wasn't deliberate, but it just happened that way. Seven years. It was my mom's side of the family. And her sisters, my aunties, they would not speak to each other, none of their families, for seven years. It made gatherings terrible because you had to schedule around, oh, they're going to be there? I'm not. And so they would never even be seen together. Seven years. Finally, I think it was the grace of God, there was a coming together to reconcile. And do you know how they reconciled their feud? They prepared a huge meal. It took months, by the way, to plan this meal. Oh man, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. And they came together to the table, and they ate from the same bread. They even double dipped in the same dip. <laughs> because it doesn't matter, we're one. And I remember as a kid seeing my dad, they would take the bread and, and he would break it and give it to my uncle. And, and then they would dip it in the hummus and the baba ghanoush. And, and then they, they would, you know, from the same bread, the same dip. And it didn't matter because the idea is the bread that's in you is the same bread that's in me, we're one. And so they came together and they ate from the same bread and they would drink from the same cup and they were reunited in their union, calm union. This is what this represents. This that we hold in our hands is a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. The Bible says there's no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. And this is what reconciles us to God, that reunion, that communion, that common union. Would you partake with me?
And then after, if you're um, done, please stand. We'll have the worship team come up at this time. They'll close us in song. I'll close us in prayer. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, so much. Lord, thank you for your blood shed in our stead. Thank you for this ordinance as a reminder, and not just a reminder of what you did, but a much needed reminder of what we have to look forward to. Because what we just did here tonight is just a foreshadow, a taste of what's to come when you come. Lord Jesus, please come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. In Jesus' name, amen.